Let us say a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, we thank you for sacred times, sacred places, and for the sacred opportunity to study your word as you gather us together today by your spirit. Bless our time together. Give us a deeper insight, not only to the book of Leviticus, but into your heart, Father, as we see you are the the loving one, the welcoming one, the compassionate one who gladly and gratefully receives us so often as we repent and turn to you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Leviticus 23. I left the... um, uh, the bullet points or the numbers from the first from the handout previously with this updated handout just to let you know kind of where we've gone. We were talking, chapter 23 is the chapter on the sacred calendar for the Israelites. And so we talked just generally about time last time and how time is actually a good gift of God. And it took the, uh, the, the pagan philosopher Plato to use what I think is just a, a lovely phrase. He said that time is the moving image of eternity. The moving image of eternity. And the world, in many respects, regards time as an enemy um, that we're trying to push back against, whether it be through uh, technological means or, or makeup or all these different things that, that we'll do a lot. No, sorry. Um, just I'm thinking about advertising. I got a mean look from over here. But uh, all, all the things, the way the advertisers play on the way that we're trying to push back against time. Uh, from a biblical perspective, time also is redeemed. Jesus says his first sermon in Mark 1.15, that time is fulfilled. And Paul echoes that in Galatians 4 when he says, that, uh, in the fullness of time, um, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And uh, so now time has been caught up and redeemed by our Lord and able to be received once again as the good gift of this. The feast days then... Our, the, a way of thinking about this is that feast days are like temples in time. Okay? So we talked about um, the, the temple being a place where space has set aside as holy, the sacred space, uh, a meeting place with the Lord. And so these feast days are likewise temples in time, the Sabbath being the preeminent one. And um, the great Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote a book on the Sabbath when he talked about this. He actually described it as a palace in time. But uh, same idea, that it's the sacred space. Feel free to get up and grab coffee if you uh, are so inclined, as I may do here momentarily. Um, And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the first um, several of these feasts. So the Shabbat, or the Sabbath day. Oh, thank you so much. Um, what a guy. Um, that, the Sabbath is kind of your, your touchstone with all of the other feast days. It's that weekly day set apart for receiving from God. God says, no work on the Sabbath day because I'm going to go to work on you, right? Uh, and this is what, where Jesus runs afoul of the religious leaders because he's healing on the Sabbath. And he says, hey, look, my father is working until now and I also am working. Because Jesus, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, has that prerogative, that divine prerogative, uh, to work on the Sabbath for us, for our sake, healing, restoring, redeeming us. We looked at Pesach, or Passover, which, of course, is that um, greatest of, of feast days, of first fruits, um, which is the, the beginning, or uh, it's part of that uh, overall celebration. And then Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which we know as Pentecost a feast that goes back to the Old Testament and then finds its fulfillment in, uh, in, in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And now what we're picking up 
uh, with uh, what's known as Rosh Hashanah, Rosh Hashanah, um, in the uh, modern times, in verse 23. So, chapter 23, verse 23, it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Oh, nuts, I forgot to bring my shofar again. I've got my shofar in, the, uh, in, in my office. I don't know. Uh, it's up on the, the, the shelf. Blow the trumpet? Exactly. If you want to go grab it, you may. You know where it's at? It's up, up on, on my shelf there. Did you hear a big crash? Yeah, exactly. We'll know what, what it is. Um, but here, uh, I think I had mentioned this before, that there was this distinction between the sacred calendar and the civil calendar, even as we have the church year and the, the secular year. So our church year um, starts each year on the first Sunday in Advent, and then, of course, the calendar year, secular year, starts on January 1st. Similarly, there was both the sacred and the secular um, new year. Did we, in fact, run low? Here, Melody, I don't need all, all of this. I'll be happy to. There's more coming. There's more coming? Oh. There's more coming. Oh, okay. Just takes a little bit. Thank you, Jeremy and Hans, for getting that. Um, and so similarly, this is that, that beginning of the, of the new year for, for the Jews. Um, what's neat is how this gets picked up in the New Testament where you have this proclamation of the coming of Christ. And one of the, one of the signs that accompanies our Lord is going to be what? My, the shofar. I, I can't do it well. This was uh, given to me to my man uh, a number of years ago. Not a Jewish man, but a Christian man who traveled to the, the Holy Land. And the shofar, the ram's horn. I don't know what sound they would make exactly. Um, but it's a hollowed out. I don't know. Does it need to be hollowed out? You might know, Ben. Is it, is it hollow naturally, or do they need to hollow it out? I don't know for sure. Okay. I don't know either. Depending on your animal, it's hollow in parts of it, but you have to drill out the, sure. the, the mouthpiece or whatever. The yeah, animal. right. Um, but it tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you want to turn there, it speaks of this as, um, in a sense, the fulfillment, the culmination of the Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets. It says in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So think about this. The, the trumpet is, on the one hand, it's the, the symbol of or a sign of victory. Right? It has that military connotation to it. But also going back to this Feast of Trumpets, once again, when was the Feast of Trumpets? It was the New Year. And for the trumpet to be sounded at the coming of our Savior, 
saying, ah, now we have the eternal new year, the renewed creation being ushered forth through our Savior's parousia, is the Greek word, his second coming. That's what we look forward to. Already now by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, as we heard in our epistle reading today from 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, boom, he is a, what? New creation. But that individual new creation that uh, you and I are um, through the rebirth and baptism and the Holy Spirit, that's but a foretaste, an anticipation of the full renewal of all creation at our Lord's return when he comes again. Yes, Andy. So when they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, yes, uh, uh, Nehemiah and all that, mm-hmm. they when they blew the trumpets, it was a signal for everyone to gather. To gather, yeah, to gather. right. I mean, is that the same kind of thing? Yes. So that I mean, that factors into it as well. So the the sound of the trumpet was the call call to gather, not unlike the church bells and that function today. Uh, so the trumpets are the, I mean, the the, the shofar um, had manifold purposes for sure yep good okay well let's let's go on then to um, some of our other feasts here I especially want to get to uh, to that last one but continuing on um, with verse 26 and Yom Kippur the day of atonement the Lord spoke to Moses saying now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement it shall be for you a time of holy convocation and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord And you shall not do any work on that day, on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. It's a day of fasting. So it's talking about the affliction. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It's a a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall, shall you keep your Sabbath. Okay, so Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We talked about this at length in Leviticus 16. You can go back to there to see that institution of the feast day. But this is the day in which all of the sins of not only the people, but who specifically needed to have his sins forgiven on, the, on Yom Kippur. You remember? The high, yeah, the, priest, the high priest, right? So the, the high priest, just thinking about how that forgiveness cascades down, um, that it starts from that high priest, so he himself needs to be forgiven also. The author of Hebrews makes much of this in pointing out how Jesus is the ultimate high priest, that now those sacrifices don't continue to need to be made. A, because he himself is sinless, and B, because he's the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, right? Now, um, as it says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. Now, Yom Kippur, the eternal Yom Kippur has come in Christ. Um, next week, we'll talk about in chapter 25, the day of Jubilee, and how also the, that eternal Jubilee and the forgiveness of sins has been announced and proclaimed in our Savior as well. Um, our reading today, again, from, from 2 Corinthians 5, I think also beautifully encapsulates this. I want to um, underscore a, a, a line from this too. If you want to turn back there, 2 Corinthians 5. So um, 2 Corinthians 5 is one of the, the key passages to look at what is called the happy exchange or the blessed exchange. 
what is the blessed exchange? Uh, let's pick up, I mentioned the, the new creation in verse 17. Start with verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here's the key verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, a couple of things about this. First of all, uh, as we mentioned back in, I forget which chapter it was, chapter 3, chapter 4, um, the phrase that Paul uses here is the same phrase that is used in Leviticus to describe the sin offering. So that Jesus is being here set forth as the sin offering to end all sin offerings. But also, in terms of this happy exchange, he, him who knew no sin, he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the happy exchange or the blessed exchange is that Jesus gets all of our sin and we get all of his righteousness. Pretty good trade, right? Uh, that now we have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and he assumes on himself, on his shoulders, all of our sin and takes it away once and for all. In close connection to this, um, the, the image of the mystical union would often be described of Christ as the divine bridegroom and for us as his bride, the church as his bride. Because now as our bridegroom, uh, as he weds himself to us, he takes all of our impurities onto himself, rids us of them, and imparts to us all of his glories and all of his beauty and the, the dazzlingness of his righteousness. Such we have in our Lord Jesus, who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right, so that's Yom Kippur. And like I said, we've talked a lot more about that uh, previously in chapter 16. But any questions or reflections about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? Obviously, it's still celebrated. Well, I don't know if that's the right word. Still commemorated today by Jews. Um, and I don't know all the, the intricacies of the details of how it's practiced by Jews today. I don't know if any of you all have any insights or if you've known any um, Jewish folks and how they keep it. But I know that it's still, it's still a big day. It's still a high holy day um, for Jews to this day. I think that it, um, it tends to have, at least the way that I've heard it talked about, a works righteousness kind of slant to it, where it's like, okay, now on Yom Kippur, I've got to be really good on this one day. And it's like, if I can just have, uh, if I can, like a pitcher throwing a perfect game, if I can throw a perfect day on Yom Kippur, then I should be all right. I should be good with the Lord. Mm. And it's like, kind of not the point. Point is, you have not thrown a perfect game. You will not, but Jesus has for you. I guess I got baseball on the mind. Opening day is a couple weeks away. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. I, re I remember back in the day, uh, Sandy Colfax a great pitcher. Oh, yeah, that's right. He refused to pitch on Yom, Yom Kippur. Kippur. And that was significant because Yom Kippur, of course, falls typically in October. And October in baseball is when they're having what? World Series. Playoffs in the World Series. It was in the World Series, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was in the World Series. And as a, a practicing observant Jew, he refused to pitch on, on Yom Kippur. That's right. Thanks for rem reminding us of that. So good. I knew there was a reason to have a good baseball connection there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. The parable Jesus told about the 
wedding feast really fits into the new yeah. idea yes. because um, you know in that day the the um, the um, person who was throwing the wedding provided right. yes. wedding clothes yes and so when guy shows up in right. Jesus's parable no wedding clothes right he got booted out right. in the outer darkness where there'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth right and you go why yeah because you know, we have to be clothed in that robe of righteousness right. that Jesus gives us. That's exactly right. Or we'll get thrown out. And so, and not to have it would be because, because you have spurned the kindness of your king, yeah. right? And so for that guy to come in without the wedding garment says that he was like, no, oh, thanks, but no thanks. I'm, I think if you can't accept me, you know, as I am, it's like, well, <laughs> I am accepting you as I am, but clothed in, in my spotless righteousness. And I think... This is where um, our, our world, well, G.K. Chesterton, guy often um, quote, he'll, he'll talk about how um, our modern world will take things, truths about Christianity, but then divorce it from Christ. And so you'll have like fragments or reminiscences of, of Christian truth, but without its basis. So case in point would be how in our world today, people will, will boast about, well, I, you just got to accept me as I am, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way, we make it the justification of sin rather than ju the justification of the sinner. See? I mean, it seems like a small distinction, but it makes all the difference. God doesn't justify our sin and, or wink the eye at sin and say, hey, that's no big deal. He justifies the sinner by clothing us with the pure righteousness in Christ. But apart from Christ, we stand judged. We stand condemned. Mm -hmm. And we can't lose sight of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we got the opportunity to go to the Creation Museum mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Kentucky on this trip. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that I noticed was uh, the um, similarity between the covering of Adam and Eve being clothed yeah. and the covering of uh, covering for sin of blood sacrifice yes. kind of being in the same category. Yeah. Yep. And I hadn't ever thought of that before. Yeah. For, for the, both of those to be coverings yeah. for essentially for our sinful nature. Yeah. Which, I mean, not, not to say that, okay, now the body is bad. No, no, no. Or sinful. Right. Mm -hmm but just for our sinful nature. And of course, like clothes wear out and the sacrifices, yeah. you gotta do them over and over again. It's well put. Um, That's right. But for them to be in the same category as a covering for sin, that was a new idea for me. Yes, and I, if I'm not mistaken, the kapoor, the Hebrew root verb is kafar. I think it's, its root meaning is to cover. I think it's to, to cover over. Um, so what happens with atonement is God covering over our sin. Yeah, Carl and then Esther. Yeah, it, you know, uh, that little parenthetical part that Lutherans have always struggled with in the, uh, in the, uh, in the Apostles' Creed. And he descended into hell. Mm -hmm. You know, and then, I don't know, you know, what did he do there? Well, you know, he preached the Old Testament to uh, believers and on that. But you know, and then it says also that he broke the gates of hell open and led the captives out, which has always puzzled me <coughs> because it defies this concept of 
it's like, well, when I did, I tried to do a study on purgatory one time, and this is where it kind of backed into, it's where purgatory began with that part of the, yeah. of the Apostles' Creed, yeah. that idea. But it's not the second chance that we have, it's actually the first in that sense. Yeah. Because it will be the first time that we hear the truth spoken mm. with a pure mind mm. from pure lips. Mm. And it's, you know, it's the, so this concept of, of uh, whether, uh, you know, we go to heaven, there's going to be Lutherans on one side, you know, Catholics on another, Baptists <laughs> over here and so forth. It, it sort of brings that into a point where, you know, because of time, you talked about that a little mm -hmm. bit this morning in the sermon. The Greek concept of time was, they call it keros. Right, that's right. We call it chrono because it, it yeah. has this. We, that's, we, we talked about that in the last Bible study. That's right. Yeah. You weren't here. Yep. Keros, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a it's the fullness of time. kind of a thing that yeah. I can't quite grasp, but it's, it's this idea that he's still leading the captives out in that sense. Mm -hmm. If it happened in, in eternity, it's still there. That yeah, way. because all it's all present to to God who yeah. lives out outside of, of time. I want to give Esther a chance here too. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. Hey Sam, would you go turn the TV off in there? Just realize it's just replaying the service on the TV. In there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. yeah. I wonder yeah. what it was. I wonder what it was. That sounds really good. Uh, Esther, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to comment with what Anne was saying. It just brought to mind what happened to the children of Israel. In the desert, their clothes never wore out. Yeah, that's a great you point. Know, and that, that's kind of a foretaste of, yeah. of what Jesus' righteousness yeah. and his robe of righteousness uh, will never wear out. Well, and you just, now you're making me think again of, yeah. in the painting, <laughs> one, of the, one of the key things, I mean, I just kind of passed, yeah. glossed over it, but, you know, his shoes wearing out, that he, yeah. needs, to, he needs to come home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's really good. It seems like in that painting, the foot is, there's more attention on his feet, like the feet are better painted than his head, if I could say that. Okay, more detail <laughs> yeah. to it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's uh, the feet and the hands, I think that the hands kind of correspond to the feet mm -hmm. also. Um, the, the strong hand so of, there's just so much, yeah. yeah. I mean, we could go, go on and on about it, but. Um, are we supposed to write all that on the back of the postcard? <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, it's very. What's the URL for the serve? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Please listen to this. Okay, let's go on to uh, the, the final feast mentioned in chapter 23 of Leviticus, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths, also known as Sukkot. Not the Feast of Booths. That would come later. Uh, no. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, meaning like your vocation. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. 
And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. Okay, so the Sukkot, or the, the Feast of Booths, where this is probably what Peter has in mind when he says um, at the Transfiguration, Lord, can I make three tents for you and Moses and Elijah? Is they would make their sukkah, or the, and uh, the sukkah was like this, this little booth. Have you ever seen these? They, they'll still get made um, uh, to, to this day. And this is a, a reminder of when God was their tabernacle, their traveling tabernacle for them in the wilderness, how he continued to provide a dwelling place for the, for the Israelites. Now, uh, this gets invoked in the New Testament in a really interesting and profound way uh, at a pivotal moment in our Lord's ministry. In John chapter 7, go to John 7. And um, some of this we know from intertestamental literature and other um, background in addition to the scriptures. Some of the um, just ceremonies that sprang up and surrounded the Feast of, of Sukkot. We knew, of course, about the booths, um, but there were a couple of other pieces of the party, if you will. Um, so go to uh, John 37, verse 37. Okay, and uh, it says this. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Which feast is this? This is, the, this is Sukkot, okay? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. And then once again, um, turn, turn the page to chapter 8. So um, without getting too much into the weeds here, at the end of chapter 7 and going into the beginning of chapter 8, there's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Um, this was in all likelihood not part of the original manuscripts of the Bible. Okay? This is a later story that got inserted here. And we could talk about that another time if you were interested. We're, we can't say for certain if it's a genuine story. I think there's a good chance that it is, but it was not part of the first manuscripts. All that to say, we jump right ahead to verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So these two important proclamations of Jesus. First of all, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And second of all, I am the light of the world. He says this in the context of the last day of the feast, the feast of, of Sukkot. Now, why is this significant? Because it had come to pass that at the time of our Lord Jesus, the way that Sukkot was celebrated, there were two key ceremonies. The first of them uh, would be the ritual pouring out of water on the altar. And not just like a little bit, but more like, well, I don't know, maybe you guys haven't been to Great Wolf Lodge. Um, but uh, our family has. Like at Great Wolf Lodge, the water park, there's the ginormous bucket of water that dumps out. 
Uh, I can't say that it was quite that large, but there was a huge outpouring of water. And it was connected with this promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was the living water that the Lord would, would pour out. This was in Joel chapter 2, and he gets brought up in the book of Acts and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 when Peter quotes from that. So you have this huge ritual outpouring of water, and then you have the lighting of a large candelabrum or menorah, right? And so you'd have this great big, not just like, you know, one that you might have on our altar here, but a giant larger-than-life menorah, candelabrum, where the lights would be lit. These two key ceremonies were part of the Sukkoth at the time of our Lord Jesus. So just imagine him in that context on that last day, the greatest day of the feast. The water poured out, the lamps lit, and Jesus says these two things. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and I will give him living water. And again, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast of booth, of Sukkot, of tabernacles, even as John said at the beginning of his gospel, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Literally, that's what, what he says. Um, dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. So now in Christ, we have that fulfillment um, through the gift of his Holy Spirit, that living water, and likewise through the light that we have, the, the flame of the Spirit, flame of faith that dwells in our hearts. I think it's a, a powerful connection and testimony to um, what the work of our Lord Jesus is. All right, um, to conclude this discussion from chapter 23, um, I think it's, it's so significant. God tells them and he <laughs> insists, you shall celebrate, you shall rejoice. And again, in our uh, gospel today of the, the parable of the prodigal son, the father says, it was necessary for us to celebrate and be glad and that word, it was necessary, is the same word that Jesus uses elsewhere to say it was necessary for me to suffer and to die. The party is no less important than the passion. See, Indeed, the passion is for the sake of the party. Our Lord Jesus says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Humanity is created for festivity. That's the culmination of it all, you guys. I mean, the, the saved by grace, through faith, what is it all pointing to? What's it all leading to? It's leading to the party. Jesus says, I came that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be made full. If our faith is some dour affair, if it's just a matter of, you know, keeping the books of some rule keeping, we have utterly missed the point. This is what the father is saying to the elder son in the parable as well. You thought that you were slaving away from me. Don't you understand? All things are yours. I, if you would have just said the word, we could have had that, that young goat with your friends. Not that you have any friends. You're such a prig. No, he doesn't say that. <laughs> um, we are made to party. Why, why feasts? It's, uh, with, the, with these festivals, it's an occasion and an opportunity for stewardship, a stewardship of the gifts, returning back to the Lord what he has, has given to us. It's a matter of education. These festivals teach the things that people celebrate, the things that you say this is worth having a party for, that tells you what really matters and, and what's important. It's part of why I love, um, and Chelsea's done such a good job of this, you know, having these different festivals that we're doing, whether it be the, you know, the Shrove Tuesday pancakes, the Epiphany Party, having 
restoring some festivity to these things in the church here so they don't just get passed over, you know? It's an opportunity for renewal. God says, you need to rest. You get it, guys? Relax already. And then finally, and underscoring all of that, to celebrate. To celebrate the, the fact that the Lord, he is God. That all things are ours through the gift of his son, Jesus. Uh, if we can't celebrate, then we're just we're missing the boat. There was an article in our Lutheran Witness um, a few years ago by a guy named Anthony Esselin. And uh, it said, raising, the title of it was Raising Children in an Age of Nothing. Raising Children in an Age of Nothing. And he says, let, let me name the things whereof the nuns, referring to um, those who claim to have no religious affiliation, especially of my generation and younger. He says, let me name the things whereof the nuns have none. They are not apt to have feasts. Big meals, maybe, and debauchery too often, but the feast that brings people together in joy because they stand in the light of the transcendent God, none. But we must have feasts. The more and the more solemn, the merrier, a paradox that the nuns do not understand. A world loses the sense of festivity because well, what is there to party about? I mean, there might, I, I shouldn't put it that way. They might have parties in the sense of, you know, the kind of things that you have at college frat houses. But that's different from a true festivity, celebration, a glad heart, gratefulness for God. This is where the medieval people, when you learn about the Middle Ages, and we always just call it the Dark Ages, and oh, it was you know, such a, a bleak time. You read about the Middle Ages and in, in uh, European Christendom, those people were partying all the time. They were having some blowout feasts. They worked hard. But they also celebrated greatly. Did it go a little too far sometimes? Almost certainly. Um, but this, we've just lost this so much in our culture. And I love this quote from Joseph Pieper in his book, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. He says that festivity is a joyous affirmation of being. And amen, that something exists rather than nothing. You know? When we celebrate, when we have festivals, we say... It's a good thing to exist. For all the, the difficulties and the hardness of life, it's good that there is something rather than nothing. We are glad that God has made us and furthermore that he has, has redeemed us. Thus chapter 23 of, of Leviticus in that sacred year. But any reflections on or questions about the, the festivals or just this uh, concept of, of festivity? Yeah, Anne. Um, the, um, the classic meaning of the word comedy is kind of this all pointing toward um, happy ending and usually, you know, like a wedding at the end. Right. Like your, your classic comedies, your Shakespeare comedies, yep. even your rom-coms that are faithful yeah. to the word comedy. Somebody's getting married at the end. Always. And yep. um, it's just, it's like, yes, humanity is created for festivity and it's just kind of like the culmination of festivity is... Yeah. A marriage. Like, yeah. that's the best thing we can think of. It's, well, and it's the pointer toward, uh, ultimately, yes. at the coming of Christ, the consummation of all things yeah. is the marriage feast of the Lamb. When the, uh, we will be like a bride adorned for her husband, it says in Revelation 19. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's, it's spot on, right? What's Jesus' first sign? What, where is he? At He's at a wedding. <laughs> that's not just frivolous. This is what his whole... 
his whole uh, ministry is ultimately pointing toward. Couldn't help himself. Couldn't help himself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I just think the more that we can engage this and embrace this, it's, it's a witness. It really is a witness to our world, which it's just, I mean, you turn on the news, you go online, God forbid, it's just like, I'm not saying that there aren't things to be concerned about or that the world is not in, uh, in many ways in a dark way, but we have an ultimate hope that, that a light that the darkness cannot and will not over, overcome. Yeah. Yes, Andy. I mean, it doesn't make the celebration less true just because grief is also true. Right. I mean, it just doesn't. It's right. not one or the other. That's, that's exactly right. It doesn't make the celebration less true because the grief is not also true. And this is why you know, we read that from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, we, we grieve not as the world grieves, as those who have no hope. We do grieve. It's not that we don't grieve, but our grief is a hope-suffused, infused grief. Our, our grief is a hope-infused grieving. Yeah. Um, it's not either or. It goes hand in hand until finally on that last day when Jesus comes and the Father will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Right? That's what we look forward to and long for. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that... Uh, this is the ones that are outlined in Leviticus. Yeah. But there were some add-on ones, too. Yeah. Uh, such as Esther's... Uh, oh, Purim. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hanukkah. Like yeah. Hanukkah. Um, which was kind of an inter, uh, intertestamental feast. So, yeah. I mean, the Jewish people were a partying people. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we Christians are faithful to our heritage, we also are a, a celebratory and festival Feasting people. Yeah, Absolutely. When I was, when I, <laughs> What's that? Potlucks. Potlucks, exactly. Easter brunch. Easter brunch. Yes. When I, when I was uh, in my 20s, I had a period of time that I was dating an Israeli hmm. when I lived out in California. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, it didn't go long enough to experience a ton- Day of Atonement. Hmm. But it was in the spring of the year. Yeah, yeah. And I went to Purim. Yeah. And it was fun. We had all noisemakers. Yeah. Every time you say Haven, you yeah. do the noisemakers and all that. It was very fun. Yeah. yeah. Golly. You know, I just, the more that we can recover this, the more I think we, we are able to give a witness to our, our world. Uh, there's the uh, hymn. It's my, my favorite hymn, my favorite unsingable hymn in, in the hymnal. <laughs> oh, God, O oh Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, God, O oh Lord of heaven and earth. And uh, there's a line. I'm just, uh, Um, but then it has this line, um, and in, that in these gray and latter days, there may be those whose life is praise, each life a high doxology to Father, Son, and unto thee. And we live in these gray and latter days, but how much more brightly then can those of us who are filled with the Holy Spirit or are the light of the world able to shine as we have that celebratory party, the marriage supper of the Lamb in anticipation. So let's stop there. And uh, next week we'll do probably chapters 24 and 25. We'll see. Go ahead and read ahead if you'd like. There's some great stuff in there. Thank you guys for hanging out with us today. And uh, we'll see you hopefully on Wednesday for our penultimate Wednesday service and, and supper. And yeah, see you then. God bless.